0: Good morning, this is Fordham Conversations. I'm Claudia Morell. I was on Facebook the other day, obviously procrastinating, and I came across this picture of one of my former high school teachers. He was standing on the beach wearing a yellow shirt with the word bully crossed out in red ink, you know, similar to those anti-smoking signs. He was holding his bike above his head and he had a huge smile across his face. The caption said he had just completed a cross-country bike tour to spread awareness about school bullying and teen suicide. And while on the road, I found out that he had kept a blog where he described the sites, reflected on bullying, and of course being the English teacher that he is, talked a lot about philosophy and human nature. So today I'm speaking with my former Loyola High School English and philosophy teacher Christian Gregory about his journey, and then later Fordham University psychology professor Dr. Peggy Andover to learn more about her research on suicide and self-inflicted injury. So, Christian, when did you become involved with the issue of bullying?
1: It had been drawn to my attention by students for two consecutive years based on uh, events in the news. The Rutgers student who had committed suicide on one year became a topic in my philosophy class, where students were very interested in um, ethical issues surrounding culpability of the student who perpetrated that sort of invasion and responsibility. Uh, The next year my own awareness became heightened uh, based on a series of suicides that i had been reading about online and um, I became concerned. In the spring one of my students decided to choose bullying as the topic for his research paper. Um, A great student named Ned at Loyola and um, he did a great deal of research and as he was doing research I was also um, doing research, uh, not only reading his paper, but becoming more acutely aware, especially in the spring months of one suicide after another, of middle school students taking their own lives. Um, I felt I needed to do something, and I decided that I would do 100 spin classes in 30 days. In the culminating 100th class, I had a couple of teachers, some students with me, and it was very meaningful. After that, I thought, is there something else I can do? Is there something more significant? And one thing led to another, and I decided um, spontaneously to tell my students, to talk about this with my students, and tell them that I would ride across the United States um, to draw awareness to the issue of bullying and to develop an awareness campaign against bullying.
0: And did you go in with any uh, expectations or nerves or or, or concerns?
1: No, uh, I'm foolish in that way. So within a week of finishing, no, within one day of finishing my last responsibilities academically at Loyola, I researched cross country rides online. I was going to do this unsupported, which means I was going to go east to west, but I felt that it would just be recreating isolation, and I thought that that would be problematic thinking about bullying and riding alone and getting flat tires and riding through cornfields with nothing in sight and no one to talk to. Um, And so I decided that I would research assisted rides. And by assisted rides, I mean supported rides in which there are vans that ride alongside you, that the routes are determined, that you have a place to stay every night. And I found Cycle America online. and, And I flew out within the week to Seattle. And my Route started from Seattle, and uh, eventually came to the, the East Coast, to the Atlantic Ocean.
0: I was reading in your blog, and you were talking a lot about uh, the first night when you met everyone. And can you describe your first impressions when you got to the gymnasium? Uh, was it kind of like the first day of school?
1: Um, that's exactly right. It was the first day of school. And uh, it's recasting a bunch of adults from a variety of locations all over the world, many from Britain, some from Northern European countries, Australia, a woman from South Africa, um, some a woman from Quebec, uh, into essentially a middle school. And there we were in the gymnasium, sleeping on gymnasium floors, and I remember sort of wandering into the bathrooms and seeing um, that all the bathrooms were catered toward middle school students. And I felt this awkwardness, the same awkwardness I felt you know, entering my own high school 30 years ago, and wondering what table I was going to sit at. You know, where do I sit? Who do I sit with? Um, so it was an unusual experience.
0: What were people's reactions uh, when you told them why you were why you were doing this ride?
1: Uh, many were supportive, and some of the younger kids were um, suitably ironic. <laughs> so. Uh, they kept on saying, bully the bullies, bully the bullies. And I thought, okay, well, that's not quite what I want to do. Many of the riders were uh, associated with education or, of course, had raised children through the school system. Uh, many were interested in knowing if this is an issue. Uh, that was most interesting to me. They said, is bullying an issue in the schools? And remarkably, because we were staying and sleeping in middle schools and high schools across the country. Invariably, they would see signs in the hallways and the bathrooms of anti-bullying policies that were put in place by each school system. And uh, they became slowly aware of the issue. And it began a conversation. I then would speak to people candidly about their own experiences or their own relationship to the topic. And that led to a lot of interesting discussions.
0: I imagine it would be pretty hard to carry on conversations while spending most of the day cycling. Uh, Did you spend most of that time uh, thinking and reflecting, or was there dialogue? And uh, what was going through your head uh, in the beginning?
1: Uh, Well, in the first week, cycling takes over. And so uh, survival was going through my head in the beginning, my own survival. Um, Whether it was, you know, riding through inclement temperatures, um, riding through... Rain. I rode three century rides in one week um, through Washington State, which has a lot of hills, (laughs) a lot of passes, which means you're riding uphill for long, long periods of time. You know, for example, one day I rode um, uphill. It was so slow I didn't through rain um, to get to uh, Stevens Pass, um, where you see snow and mountains. So I was cold and wet and uh And I thought, well, I'll dry off downhill, won't I? Um, You don't dry off. It actually uh, drops your temperature even more because of the wind chill. Um, And so I thought I would have hyperthermia going downhill. Um, Within 24 hours, I had sunburn all over my arms because I had forgotten sunscreen. So when I said I was foolish and unprepared, I sort of dove in not knowing what I was doing. Uh, As I became more experienced, I was able to use the ride the writing time, to reflect on really what was important. Um, so by the time I got to Wyoming, I was really thinking through a lot of issues um, related to bullying, related to students who had committed suicide. And I don't know how many, you know, through each state, it was, I would actually Google suicides in that state, teenage suicides, and find expressions like bullied to death, um, which was a common expression used to describe the events happening across the country.
0: Do you think you could talk about some of these kids and the sites that that triggered these thoughts?
1: Yeah, um, I have one entry, um, which um, I spent some time to write, and it was while I was riding through the state of Wyoming, and um, I'll read it. Um, It's titled, Three Boys, Two Buffaloes, One State. When I arrived, I learned of Alexander Fry, a 13-year-old from Cheyenne. A precocious kid, he enjoyed the company of adults and loved trains, which he could speak about with great expertise among rail veterans. I've ridden by several trains here, some of the longest trains imaginable, carrying God-knows-what to who-knows-where. I imagined Alex would have answered the what and where of such trains. Quiet, short for his age, and with the demeanor, according to one adult neighbor, of an old-school gentleman, Alex was slow to make friends and had become repeatedly bullied in school. He told his parents he would handle it, that everything was, quote, cool. But his grades were dropping, and was staying, and he was staying home to avoid the daily taunts and attacks. In January, Alex shot himself at the tracks of the Union Pacific Rails. I pass by trains and think of Alex. The same is true of Wyoming Fences and Matthew. Matthew Shepard, an openly gay college student at the University of Wyoming, was beaten repeatedly by two adult teens, pistol-whipped, tied to a fence, and left comatose and unrevivable by the hospital staff. Matthew's face was unrecognizable, covered with blood, save for the areas wiped clean by his own tears. This was 1998. But for me, as for others, such events are indelible warnings of thoughtlessness, cruelty, and neglect. I ride along these roadside fences and think of Matthew. Days ago, I rode into Buffalo, Wyoming. I thought only of my hometown, Buffalo, New York, and Jamie Rodemeyer, who hanged himself earlier this year after bravely coming out as bisexual. Like Alex, Jamie was in middle school. Like Matthew, Jamie was a gay activist amid a homophobic culture. Jamie attended a school just miles away from my own middle and high school. I feel I know these kids. I feel I know that school. Three boys separated by vast space and time. Still, I feel... That Matthew, Alex, and Jamie are interconnected casualties of a culture of loud and rude and cruel, bent on an impulse to degrade at any cost, from reality TV to political pundits. Ours is a culture of the quick kill, a hunger game of words, lies, texts, email, and social isolation. The attack or be attacked state of mind spreads virus like, taking its casualties. The nerds, rebels, throwbacks, anomalies, the gentle kids. So I'm in Wyoming within one year of a boy's death and thinking of, thinking of another in 1998. In one buffalo, thinking of another, and why I ride and what can be done.
0: Now what makes that passage really interesting is the fact that you discuss these different kids, but it's not just from different states, but also from different decades. And so bullying has... I guess, always been an issue in schools. Now, do you think the public perception of of the issue has changed now that lawmakers are trying to legislate against it, people are more active about it? Why do you think that is now?
1: I think that while bullying has always been an issue, the response to bullying has shifted, particularly from the victim's point of view. I say that based on this prevalence in the past two years of middle school suicides. I think years ago, um, bullying would happen in schoolyards, visibly, um, witnessed by many. And in some ways, the physical attack um, or the gossip rumors would be heard and understood, and somehow students would manage it. Um, Here, I think electronic bullying and cyberbullying Um, takes a kind of insidious, has an insidious nature. And there's a kind of violence with words that seems to um, unsettle students at very vulnerable times in their lives, middle school students particularly. And the action that they're taking is violence against the self. And so while suicide is the most final, um, I have reflected on other forms of self-violence such as cutting, alcohol abuse, drug abuse, um, that seemed to me uh, to emerge from this.
0: In your blog, you made an interesting reference uh, comparing cycling and bullying when you talked about the Peloton, uh, which I actually had to look up and found that it's a formation cyclists make to conserve energy by shielding themselves from the wind and you compared that to what you called the tribes of the schoolyard, which you say are created with not the best intentions in mind. Uh, Can you um, expand on that?
1: Uh, Yeah, I I mean, because I was combining these two events, which wouldn't normally go together, uh, the tribes of high school and the tribe of cycling together, uh, I was thinking about their relation, and I noticed how on sports teams people do band together for a common cause. And what I've noticed about middle school and high school communities is that some students can band together for um, a detrimental end and uh, that's what most struck me is that what happens when um, you have a kind of power and you're drawn to other people who have a sort of power and yet you have no moral direction (laughs) Um, you're geared toward an immoral direction for whatever reason based on insecurity and so you band together to Um, demean others to uh, in acts of cruelty. And I tell the story of um, one young girl I tutored um, that was sort of shocking to me, and she was an eighth grader, and she really did have it all. She was quite bright, and she came from a good family, and she was at a, um, a nice school. She wasn't concentrating on her academics. She was concentrating on social politics. And uh, when I asked her why she wasn't concentrating in academics, she says, well, do you want to know what I do every Monday morning? I said, what? She said, well, I have a morning meeting. I said, you do? Yeah, I get you know, my girls together, and we, um, we, we send each other out into the cafeteria to find out exactly what happened with every other girl that weekend. And then we come together um, for our meeting, and then we decide how to use the information against them. I was speechless. I mean, I just, I didn't know what to say. And I thought, that's people banding together in the wrong way. And I think it's, it's, it's sort of bred out of a kind of, you know, the valorization of gossip and the valorization of cruelty, um, as if that's a value that we have to emulate, um, where power is the only end, um, not kindness.
0: Would you say that teachers are more aware of the issue of bullying than students believe that they are aware of the gossip that's going on in, in the outside the classroom in the hallways and that some just look the other way or don't know how to interact with with these kinds of um, situations I
1: I, th- I think it's tempting to think that um, we're a nation of teachers that turn the other way or that I'm a part of a nation of teachers that look the other way um, when in fact Um, So much of it is clandestine and so much of it is privatized in text messages, um, in private conversations, in in bathrooms, in glances, in disregard. Um, Teachers do take note of explicit um, acts of verbal and physical violence, of course, and of course they act on it. Um, It's harder to take note of what's happening online at home. Simultaneously, I think it's difficult for any student who has been victimized to approach a teacher or even approach a friend about what's happening.
0: On your blog, you use a lot of philosophy and literature to talk about human nature. Uh, Can you give me one example of a philosopher that you've talked about in your blog?
1: I bring up Hannah Arendt because I think it's a really interesting idea of her idea of plurality which is a a philosophy of inclusion. And it's predicated on this paradox that we are equal, but not interchangeable. We are distinct from one another. We must realize that we have equality of rights. Yet, at the same time, I'm fully aware that we are distinct individuals. And part of the challenge in high school and in life is... I think for Hannah Arendt is to um understand no is to come to an acceptance of distinction in the world that's not to relieve people of responsibility um that doesn't mean that we are all distinct and so we all get to do whatever we want there is a kind of moral code that we have to live by and Hannah Arendt um notes that and she's of course writing in full cognizance out of the holocaust in which you know there were distinctions, but there was not equality. Rights were being taken away from group after group after group. And so I think that her philosophy was bred out of that. I think it's a useful philosophy for high school. Um, and it is often taught and sometimes forgotten. And it's taught at a very young age in first, second, kindergarten, first, second, and third grade. Um, and somewhere along the line um, in middle school, kids. Um, lose sight of differences. They really do want everyone to conform.
0: And so how do you think this trip has changed your perception on the issue? Has it changed your perception? Um,
1: Well, I think one of the benefits of being on a bike eight hours a day (laughs) is that I have had the chance to reflect, and sometimes alone, just with the landscape. And it was my job, I saw it as my job, to get out there and think through an issue, not knowing if I had the answers. Um, And sometimes I was struggling with trying to find a solution, what would be the solution. And I don't know if I have all the answers at the end of the trip. What I found is that, as a teacher, I feel compelled to help cultivate virtue in students. Um, And I think that we're in a society that is interested in, you know, diagnosing anxiety. And I think that's important. But at the same time, I'm really interested in teaching the value of honesty, of integrity, um, of kindness. And I think that kids don't focus enough on um, the positive qualities they have and that like any other skill, be it athletic or academic, these inclinations of value, of ethical value, of moral value in the world, need to be practiced. And I don't think that they practice them enough. What would it mean to practice practice acts of kindness, practice virtues?
0: And what would one message that you would really want, um, I guess, kids that are bullied to really take to heart?
1: I guess my first impulse is to say that um, they're not alone. And I think the feeling of isolation and loneliness and desperation and hopelessness is profound for someone who's bullied, and that the most important, um, the more connections they have, personal connections to the world, the less likely they are to sever those connections or their connection to the world. And so family connections, friends, teachers, teams, um, all elements which attach ourselves in a meaningful, significant way to others um, can be developed. And so very often um, the isolated student, whether they're isolated because of race or gender or sexuality or um, or some diagnosis or some um, learning disorder, suffer from a lack of attachment. And so it's about Knowing that at any time you can start developing yourself and developing an attachment to many things, um, The example I would give is, sometimes you can develop a passion for a hobby. Um, and uh, you know one thing I learned was that um, you know you can fall in love with biking, for example, just in the process of doing it every day over the summer.
0: To learn more about Christian Gregory's campaign, you can visit his blog at ateacheragainstbullying.blogspot.com. I'm Claudia Morel on 90.7 WFUV. Now I'll be speaking with Fordham University psychology professor Dr. Peggy Andover. Dr. Andover is a cognitive behavioral therapist. Her research focuses on suicide and non-suicidal self-injury, or NSSI.
2: So, Professor Andover, what is the difference between these two types of behaviors? The primary difference between them is essentially suicidal intent. So both involve deliberate injury to the body, um, deliberate tissue damage. But non-suicidal self-injury is done with no intent to die at all. And attempted suicide is done with at least some intent to die. How prevalent is an SSI? Like 47% of college students report a history of NSSI. Oh. So it's actually it's really interesting. That that they
0: started in college? Or... No,
2: most start earlier. Um, most onset um, early adolescence. Um, but there are a significant number of people who kind of continue to do it when they're in college. And a significant number of people have, have done it. I think it's something like um, 18% of college students have hurt themselves without trying to kill themselves, but hurt themselves on purpose a hundred times or more in their lifetime. And so is, it, is it usually
0: related to stress as a, as a stress reliever or?
2: It can be. There are a couple of different functions for NSSI. Um, so one can be um, kind of, you know, we think of it as, as regulating, emotion regulation. Um, so it might be to relieve stress or kind of, make the person feel better. Do you think there's more of a stigma associated
0: with that than committed suicide that it's more prevalent and people just keep it to themselves because
2: it is a really secretive behavior. Um, a lot of people do try to hide it, um, quite a bit. Um, I don't know if there's, if it's more secretive than suicide. I mean, I might say yes, just because, um, a, a lot of times the injuries are more difficult to see and things like that. Um, you know, one of the one of the things, again, about NSSI that isn't really well known is that um, people very often think of cutting, and cutting is definitely a method of self-injury, but it's not the only method. So um, one of the most common methods, sometimes it's actually more common than cutting, sometimes it's slightly less common than cutting, is actually scratching, um, so skin-picking behaviors, burning, um, picking at scabs, self-hitting, things like that, really... Um, kind of any type of behavior that is done on purpose to cause tissue damage, but is done without suicidal intent.
0: And in your research, you talk a lot about the risk factors involved with attempted suicide and NSSI. Uh, Can you
2: uh, tell me which ones are most important and what people need to look for? Attempted suicide and non-suicidal self-injury do have some risk factors in common. Some are different. specifically for attempted suicide, really one of some of the strongest risk factors and one of the strongest risk factors is history of previous suicide attempts, history of previous suicidality Um, really tends to be a pretty strong predictor of death by suicide. There's also been research that shows us that you know, potentially, possibly even more so than a history of suicide, a history of non-suicidal self-injury predicts um, attempted suicide. And then we do know that there are other risk factors. So, for example, a family history of suicide, um, history of a mental disorder such as or current mental disorder like depression um, or anxiety, um, substance use, these all can be risk factors for attempted suicide.
0: And around what age do these disorders, like depression, start to develop?
2: So depression generally starts to develop in um, really in early adolescence, although depression is something that could onset really at any time. But we do see that especially among females, we do see um, a spike in the onset of depression around early adolescence. Um, for non-suicidal self-injury, same thing. We tend to see that it starts around early adolescence. Um, and attempted suicide, unfortunately, can start pretty early on, too. Attempted suicide is actually, as of 2009, the third leading cause of death among kids 10 to 14 and 15 to 24
0: and what what triggers uh these feelings of depression or hopelessness? Is it biological?
2: is it social? We really think that it's a combination of essentially three things so people may have a biological vulnerability or heritability to something like depression potentially suicide might be heritable um, we also you know th- there is a big component, a big environmental component um, as well so people's personal experiences like something like bullying.
0: Uh, do you think these feelings of hopelessness and depression are exacerbated at schools and more specifically in the social setting outside of the classroom?
2: You know, it really can be, and bullying can be an issue. One, one of the things that we've really started to see in the literature lately is that bullying in and of itself um, is a risk factor for suicide as well. And one of the really interesting things about those findings is that it's actually not only the victims that we see um, having increased risk of suicide, it's actually also the bullies. Um, and the folks who are bully victims, who both bully and get bullying bullied, um, in some studies they've actually been shown to have the highest risk of suicide.
0: Is it hard to gather data um, on this age group? Uh, do you think it's uh, more prevalent then can be measured because people don't want to talk about it?
2: Yeah, this this actually is a pretty big problem where, you know, for a long time both of these behaviors, suicide and non-suicidal self-injury, have been, they tend they do tend to be pretty secretive behaviors and, and behaviors that have been stigmatized for a long time. So one of the things that as researchers we're always kind of confronting is this issue of under-reporting that, you know, we ask the question, but potentially some people may not um want to answer or answer that question truthfully. The good thing, though, is that as time goes on, it does seem like some of that stigma um, maybe tends to get a little bit lower or a little bit less. Um, and and people do tend to um, be more likely to report these behaviors.
0: Finally, what is one thing that you think people should really
2: uh, take away from this I think the first thing that I'd really like for people to know um, is that asking the question, are you thinking about suicide or do you want to kill yourself, is not going to make people kill themselves. And I think that's something that sometimes people are afraid, well, I don't want to ask them because I don't want to make them start thinking about anything. And you won't. It's it's really, you know, it's it's okay to ask that question. Ask them if there's something wrong. Ask them if there's a way that they can help. Show the person that you care and, you know, you're concerned for them and and you want them to be well and you want them to still be here. Um, And then to tell somebody who can get help. Um, So, you know, if it's a parent or, you know, if if it's the person themselves, really seek help, you know, um, find a professional who you can talk to and can help you. Call a suicide hotline. They're really fantastic. Um, Go to an emergency department if you're really not feeling safe. If you're a friend, tell somebody. And if you're a teacher, tell somebody um, to really make sure that the person is able to get the help that they need.
0: This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. Stay with us. George Bodarki and Cityscape are next. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Claudia Morrell.